You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast, and this is Deacon Basil. And I'm Brittany. Great. I suppose we could just move on from there. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just the two of us today. And yeah. normally we do that marriage in real life. This is real life this in real life. This is real life in real life. No, this is a therapist chat now. Oh, okay. Um, I, had, I had some clients ask me, what's it like being married, uh, having a marriage with two, with a, with a psycho, two psychotherapists? And I was like, well, she's only a grad student yet, but it's, it's rough. I can't get away with all of my psycho mumbo jumbo anymore. That's there. So... What are we talking about today, dear? Um, well, today we are talking about the issue of the past versus the present right. and how shame factors into that um, and how healing factors into that. What we were talking about earlier off mic was this kind of concept of the Christian life and that sort of testimony that we all give. I remember mm -hmm. when I was running some youth programs or, or involved with some youth programs, there was always this like, you need to have a testimony. You need to talk and have your, your, your sort of conversion moment. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of, um, you know, youth ministers and things like that, where they talk about like, come up with that St. Paul on the road to Damascus moment. Like, when did you become a Christian really? And what would happen is, is that you get some people out there and they'd be like, yeah, that was the moment where I changed, you know, and that mm -hmm. was, it, and, mm -hmm. and then you have these other people who are sitting there going like, I, I, I didn't, I didn't have a St. Paul moment. I was, I was always kind of lived the Christian life and it just kind of continued. And it was like, there's this moment of sort of, I want to blow everything into a St. Paul on the road mm -hmm. to Damascus mm -hmm. moment so that I can be like, I was a terrible sinner before. And now I'm a Christian and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good boy, and, if you will. And there's very little discussion of what does it mean to be living the Christian life now and to be repenting. A priest gave a homily on St. Mary of Egypt a couple of Sundays ago, and he asked the question. So if you don't know who St. Mary of Egypt is, she was... Check a, the show notes, but... Yeah. Um, she was a desert mother and she was uh, basically a sex addict. Uh, a major sinner, um, as we all are. Well, I, but... I mean, so she was a prostitute. Mm -hmm, she mm -hmm. um, she was a prostitute in Alexandria and then would go so far as to try and seduce Christians um, on their way to the Holy mm -hmm. Land. Um, and, and she had a... It's, yeah. it's something. Um... And, and she had a conversion experience and went to the desert. And what we know is she spent 47 years in the desert. And then there's uh, some more after that about where she meets St. Zosimus. So the priest, Father Chrysostom, in his homily asked the question, what was she doing for those 47 years? We know that she was repenting, but what does that really mean? Because so often, that's all that we get. And I think in our modern Western time and culture, our understanding of repentance has really become so far removed from the real therapeutic process uh, that that was intended by this word. Yeah, that's definitely a problem. But that's like the issue. The issue is with all of these, like the entire life of Mary is in just all about what a terrible sinner she is. Mm -hmm. Then she went off into the desert and then it jumps to where it is about mm -hmm. uh, Father Zosimus. And I think, you know, it's the same thing with, with St. 
Anthony the Great. It talks about his preparatory stuff to go into the spiritual life. Mm-hmm. It talks about um, it talks about um, yeah, Vagrius of Pontus. It was his his life before it. Mm-hmm. it. It's like there were this this kind of moment of transition that's constantly about that. And I think the problem with that is that we sometimes fixate on the idea of sin mm-hmm. rather than we fixate on the idea of what is the actual Christian life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes, I mean, I, I, I've heard this in conversion stories or, or, or at different conferences and stuff where you have someone stand up there and they'll give a lengthy, lengthy conversation about like this, this idea of um, all of these awesome, awesome before bef- I became a Christian. Well, that's, that's the implied premise. And it's like, you know, everything was, you know, I was, I was sleeping around and it was, you know, boy, doing, drugs. doing drugs and rock and roll and the whole nine yards. And it's almost a, it's sort of one up when it comes mm. to well, how terrible of a sinner I am. And then it's like, it's like I was having this incredible life. It was going down this way. And then I, the Lord came and saved me and I have this now really boring life. And I, I think Art. the problem with that mm-hmm. is we glorify sin mm-hmm. and the life of sin to the detriment of salvation and the, and the spiritual life. And it's like, why would anyone... And, and maybe this is a big question that we have to ask. Why would anyone want to be a Christian if they actually saw mm-hmm. my life? Well, and I I think on top of that, I want to go back a little bit to what you were saying about the lengthy period where of, of talking about sin and of talking about your past life. It Nobody says it explicitly, but there's this implicit glorification of shame. I need to have a really good shame story and express my shame. And then there's this vague idea of, and then I found Jesus. Right. And and Jesus loves me. And I think therein is where, yeah, why would I want to be a Christian? Because honestly, there's no practical understanding there except for, great, you found Jesus and that seems kind of to be working with for you. I don't really understand how because... Right. Um, you haven't really given any specifics on that. <laughs> right. Well, and then you've got on the other side, you've got this kind of weird, okay, so this is where I'm at um, in the spiritual life, but what do I do, you know, after the fact? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if if the spiritual life is this light switch moment, mm-hmm. what do I do after I've sinned? Absolutely. Oh, well, you go to confession. Well, I, I think I'm probably um, have done worse things after these moments of conversion in my life Absolutely. than before. Um, and maybe this is just a terrible tra- trajectory that my life is going on um, right now. But I do wonder if that's, you know, not a problem with the way in which we we um, view things. Is that it's 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 as if, first and foremost, I think we sometimes act as if the spiritual and psychological lives are a lot easier than mm-hmm. I think they really mm-hmm. are. Like, oh, well, I was a terrible sinner, and then and then I had this really great mystical experience, and absolutely everything changed in that moment. It was that St. Paul moment, mm-hmm. which is. Is okay, maybe for some, but by and large, for most of us, the spiritual life is this constant what what the church fathers would say battles with the demons, and it's that that interior battle of I have to fight those thoughts of of whatever pride. I have to fight those thoughts of lust. I have to fight those uh, those thoughts of whatever it might be, and I have to do battle with that for a very long period of time. For St. Mary, it was 47 years. For the other mm-hmm. church fathers, it can be longer. That's what they were doing in the desert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's... It, I, I mean, well, even if you look at, like, St. Paul's example, um, when he had that vision of Christ, 
we read that that um, there were scales over his eyes. And once again, I'm pretty sure, I think you've brought up Nicole Rokas's book, like the last two podcasts. I'm going to bring I'm, it up. I'm waiting, I'm, for some, it. <laughs> I'm waiting for some royalties from her, actually. I'm waiting for a kickback. Um, I am going to uh, bring it up because I'm reading it and I've been in this awesome study group with her. But she she brings up this really interesting point about how St. Paul in that moment, uh, there were the, the scales that went over his eyes and blinded him. And the way she describes it is it's almost like this psychosomatic reaction to hide from that encounter. So even that quote unquote St. Paul moment, um, you could interpret that in some ways he is attempting um that, that, that something happened for him to want to avoid that a little bit. And then you continue to look at his life and he talks about his struggles with the thorn in his flesh. And we don't know exactly what that is, but he's obviously continuing to struggle. And that, you know, in, in counseling and mental health therapy and in my work in physical therapy, we talk all the time about how recovery and re- and healing and rehabilitation is not this linear process. You're you're taking four steps forward and one step back all the time. And hopefully the trajectory that you make is continually better and better. But it's it's a really up and down roller coaster of a process, but somehow we think the spiritual life should just be this linear trajectory. Yeah, yeah, no, I know I know there's this this idea that like someone struggles with addiction mm-hmm. um, and they have a, a, a screw up. It's like all of the progress they've made um, since that last time has been completely wiped out. Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, if they were sober for six, six months and then they have a drink that that six months has been a waste yeah. of time. And, mm-hmm. and I think that there's, that's very limiting in the way in which we view things. And I think it's the same thing with, with, with um, the spiritual life and the, and, and the psychological life. I mean, again, are, is there a difference? Eh. But you know, it's 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 they're integrated to the point where we're constantly working towards it. And I think sometimes I have clients who you know we do a course of treatment and then they you know they they're gone for six months or whatever and then they call me and it's like call me to to schedule again and it's like the, there's this attitude of complete like failure on their part like they mm-hmm. well first off like i'm somehow giving them gold stars if they like make make progress mm-hmm. um in mm-hmm. therapy i mean i just want them for the sake of of finding healing themselves and i think that that's what the entire process of of this is, is that you don't you don't gain a gold star mm-hmm. um you gain healing and and we talk about healing a lot especially on this podcast but i think it comes right down to it uh back back to this concept of what is sin Mm-hmm. Sin, according to the Council of Trullo, is a disease, right? That's Canon 102 of the Council of Trullo, where it flat mm. out says, right? You see? <laughs> it flat out says, sin is a disease. Now, we can talk about what that might mean specifically, but the entire process of the spiritual life is healing from that sin. And that's exactly what St. Mary uh, did in the desert. That's exactly what all of these, you know, all of the desert fathers were. The spiritual life was a process of healing. And unfortunately, that's not sexy. I mean that no. in a non, <laughs> sexy in a non-sexual way. But um, I mean that like it's not exciting. Nobody is going to write a life of a saint who spent all of these years in the desert just doing the same things every single day. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I sometimes talk about how the uh, the church fathers, or excuse me, the desert fathers would weave baskets to go sell in Alexandria, uh-huh. but they would only make enough to be able to sustain, to sell in, um, enough of them to sustain themselves for a period of time. They would never amass wealth because of making baskets. So if they made too many baskets, they would make them in the day, and then they'd start to unmake them in, at night oh, so they could make new ones the next day. Mm-hmm. Now, this is really important because this is like, it's this constant progress that Nobody is going to write a book about how wonderful Father So-and-so was who unmade baskets that he made during the day. That's really boring. But that's important because that's part of the spiritual life. You say, you know, idle hands are the devil's playground. Well, mm-hmm. you know, that's exactly why they would unmake it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's the whole point here is, is that the spiritual life is a process of healing mm-hmm. first. It's first and foremost a process and- of healing. And we've, we've lost, I think, in a lot of modern medicine, unless perhaps if you deal with a chronic disease or I'm biased, but I'm going to say if you've been through physical therapy, long-term physical therapy, you might have a better understanding of this. But I think for a lot of us, our understanding of healing is I go to the doctor and they prescribe me a pill and then I'm all better. And all I have to do is take that pill once a day and everything is totally fine. Right. Um, but... The reality is for a lot of various diseases, there's a lot more work and effort and uh, daily, daily, hourly effort and watchfulness involved. And I think that's what the Desert Fathers and Mothers were really getting at as far as how do we heal from sin. It's not this one-time magic pill, you meet Jesus and everything is great after that. And you just take your Jesus pill every morning with your cup of coffee and your Bible open and you take a picture and post it on Instagram. Um, I wish it was that way. Um, But it is it is a daily, hourly, moment by moment. Unexciting sometimes. Most of the time it's unexciting. And I think I think this is where like, I mean, I've always maintained I haven't always. Why do I say those kind of grandiose things? I maintain that um, that modern medicine, though I'm very thankful I can just take a shot of penicillin mm-hmm. um, for 14 days mm-hmm. and get rid of some you know infection or whatever, I'm very thankful about that. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about that is that that's a very new very new thing mm-hmm. within modern uh, within modern life w- within human life. I think sometimes that causes the way in which we view healing, whether it be in the spiritual life or in the psychological or even in the physical therapeutic area, mm-hmm. that it's it's bothersome because it's, it, you think that you should just be able to immediately fix it. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it works. Most of the time with, with, uh, with psych- psychotherapy, it can take months or even years of really unexciting things well, or very, very painful things. Well, and do you have sort of the, I know in the physical world, we have people who are basically looking for like the magic guru. And that part of that is because of all the advertising that's out there. Well, first off, in psychotherapy, there is this desire for a guru um, <laughs> all the time. The reality is, is that it takes long and hard work. Now, I think what's interesting is that this transition from moment of conversion, you know, but mm-hmm. what do you do after your conversion? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that that's particularly interesting. What do you do with that? And I, I, I wonder if that's not um, where a lot of things like shame come in, shame in the past. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes we over-glorify our past 
ironically and paradoxically, not because we actually are so happy or proud of it, but it's actually a way of mitigating the difficulty of what we've done in our past so we feel better about ourselves. That makes a lot of sense. So in the sense that, you know, if, if someone struggles with, you know, a sex addiction in the past, mm-hmm. you know, oh, well, if I sit, you know, if I stand up on a stage and talk how wonderful my sex addiction, you know, how, mm-hmm. how, how bad my sex addiction was, but how wonderful that conversion was, mm-hmm. then somehow I'm able to justify all of those horrible things that I did in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and in some ways, I can see the good in that and looking to those things and thinking this is where God brought good from this. But then it it does leave something wanting as far as I think especially for the the regular sort of person just listening, the regular sort of sinner out there. Yeah. Um who uh, who struggles um, who struggles with their sin daily and who maybe doesn't have a, an outlet to go and to tell people, Hey, this is where I sinned. And this is, this is my testimony of how God came and converted me. Most of us are being the, the hands and the feet of Christ just in our everyday relationships with people. And there's not really a good way to tell, I mean, sometimes in, in intimate conversation, sure, but there's, those kinds of testimonies don't work in everyday relationships. Well, they, no, they don't. So I, I, but I think, I think this question about shame Shame. is really Mm -hmm. important because what I see in therapy a lot of times is that there's a lot of shame for past deeds. Mm -hmm. Um, And typically what happens is that people are even uncomfortable to bring up Right at the beginning, which mm-hmm. I understand, you know, mm-hmm. psychotherapy is probably the only time most people are going to talk about the difficult past that they've had mm-hmm. um, in any way. But uh, typically what happens, well, not typically, but sometimes what happens is people are hesitant to talk about the actual elephant in the room. So they're sitting there thinking about, you know, this this past experience that they had that they're shameful about, but they don't want to bring it up in therapy mm-hmm. because to bring it up would make it sort of more real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that... Um, yeah, I, I, I think what that has done in particular is that there's this, even in therapy, but especially out in the spiritual life, there's this kind of underlying feeling of shame around our past. And I'll just use the example of most men, not every man, not not even, you know, the, every single man in a specific room, but most men struggle with pornography addiction. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of in the background of a lot of people's spiritual lives where they're really struggling with this, but they're not going to talk about it. Do you, do you ever feel like, so this kind of makes me think of, again, St. Paul, the idea of first being blinded by some kind of scales over his eyes, the idea of Adam and Eve, they realized they were naked. They feared that kind of intimate encounter with the Lord and they quote themselves. Do you ever feel like those past experiences and the sort of shame from them becomes then a means of preventing a real encounter with the Lord. It can. Um, it, it, it definitely can. Now, I, I, I think it's important to say, okay, what exactly were the scales in Paul's oh, eyes? Oh, absolutely. That and absolutely. I, don't, I don't know if those were physical or metaphorical mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because, I, I mean, I think he was blind, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think the image of scales falling from... Mm-hmm 
your eyes um, and then being able to see what really has happened. The sort of truth of the reality of, mm-hmm. of your past mm-hmm. is really, really important. And I think all of us, whether, you know, physically or, or, or psychologically, need to have those moments of, of those scales falling from our eyes, mm-hmm. you know. And, and typically what happens for people is that they'll, they'll realize what their past has actually done to the people around them. Mm-hmm. And that's that sort of moment of scales falling from the mm-hmm. eyes. But I, I, I think what happens with, the, with that process is that there are certain characteristics of people that will be more psychologically more tend towards um, shame and, and an overextended aspect of guilt. Now, mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate as to what exactly is the difference between shame and guilt. There's a lot that has been written on that. And I actually don't want to really go into that too much today. Mm-hmm. But what interests me about it is, is how do you kind of deal with that from a, from a psychological perspective? So because it is the Catholic Psyche podcast, how do we deal with things <laughs> from a psychological perspective? Well, we do know that there are certain traits and characteristics that people can have that are that tend more towards shame rather mm-hmm. than others. Mm-hmm. And what those typically are is a, a significant or a strong public self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Now, what I mean by that is not like that I know I should be recycling and I don't or, or you know, like an idea of, you know, not that kind of uh, public self-awareness, but rather the way in which I see myself in the public, my awareness of myself uh-huh. within the public. Mm-hmm. And... So, for example, if I am feel very, very shameful about a past experience that I might have had, mm-hmm. I can tend to think that everybody in the world has this awareness of my past oh, sin. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know. Maybe you, maybe you have some kind of marking on your body or you're forced to go to prison or whatever that might be because of past sin. But typically, the, it's this process of saying, how do I deal with this idea of, I'm always in the shameful state when I'm out in the world and nobody would even know me from Adam. Hmm. That is that is a question. I don't know the and, answer. <laughs> and, you know, the answer to that, of course, is this comes from a typical cognitive distortion that we have in cognitive therapy, mm-hmm. right? And what the typical distortions are, Aaron Beck outlined 10 of them. Um, and, of course, you have them all memorized, um, the <clears throat> cognitive distortions, right? Yeah. But I think, I think one in particular is this idea of mind reading. You know, when I have that automatic thought, it's because I'm sitting here thinking they know, like, this is what they're thinking. The people around me, they know that something has happened and sort of a fixation point on my past saying, I'm walking down the street and everybody knows that I, I don't know, I slept with a prostitute last night. Everybody knows this, right? There's probably very little chance that that's the case. And they probably don't even care, mm-hmm. uh, by and large. But it's this idea that I have this constant state of, of mind reading. And I think this happens in the church quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Where, because of, I think, some bad experiences on certain social media accounts um, or <laughs> platforms, um, there's this attitude that there's this judgment coming from people in the church. And sometimes yeah. there is. But I think, in particular, it's, it's, it's this assumption that everybody knows all of this past experiences and past issues. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's... I mean, has that been your, not, not your um, experience? But. No, absolutely. Well, and I can, you know, just, just personally, that makes a lot of sense because the times when I have personally felt the most shame, it's, and, and I would say shame in an unhealthy manner, it's been assuming that I know what someone else is thinking about me. And it's been assuming that I know what their opinion is of me and uh, vice versa, the times that people have come back 
um, really defensive against me when I've mentioned something that might be, I don't know, that might be like slightly critical, but it was meant to be just critical of, of a word or an action or something along those lines. And I really have the highest regard for the person. It's been well, you're you're judging me and you're thinking that I'm thinking this. And it's like, I actually had no idea that you thought that. If you do think that, I, I just right. want... <laughs> there's this, there's I just this, thought you should put a comma there. This, um. <laughs> yeah, there's this psychological phenomena where um, you, you turn one negative experience into an mm-hmm. overgeneralized character logic Is that another of one it. of them? Is that another cognitive distortion? Well, it, it's within that. Yeah, oh, okay. absolutely. I mean, okay. there's this concept of labeling, and it's um, it's where you put sort of a global negative label on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's th- th- this is where it's like, you know, no driver that cuts me off is having a bad day. It's He's an idiot, right? And he hates you personally. And he hates me personally, and he's wronged me personally. <laughs> it's not that he, you know... Whatever I, might be happening, and I've I think that's really you important. Come back, you come back to driving a lot, and the people who cut you off in the podcasts. This is why I edit all of these podcasts <laughs> that I do with you in excruciating detail. Um, no, but I, I, I think that 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 idea of dealing with shame and dealing with these, um, you know, this idea is to really look at those cognitive distortions because the reality mm-hmm. is is that most people don't know mm-hmm. what you've done in your past mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. people don't even care mm-hmm. you know i i remember i remember as a like a high school student you know you assumed that everybody knew everything like like i don't know let's say you 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 came in with i don't know some minor flaw let's say let's say you had a, like a mark on your i don't know on your shirt or something mm-hmm. and you just assume everybody is staring at it going what's going on there like, mm-hmm. what happened there? It's mm-hmm. like this one blemish or something that's right there constantly. And the reality is, is that most of them probably haven't even noticed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most people don't even notice those kind of things, mm-hmm. by and large. And it's the same thing with, with I think, an over-fixation on our own, on our own issues sometimes. Uh-huh. It's, it's a strange type of vainglory, is what it sounds it is, like It me. is a strange type of vainglory. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, so that's the first kind of characteristic, is this sort of over-sense of public self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, the next side to it is what we call, and, and I have some real struggles with this personally, but it's this idea of um, low self-esteem. Now, I I think sometimes I get really frustrated when you have people talk about like psychological concepts with absolutely no connection to the psychological uh-huh. idea. So self-esteem has really been one of those areas where it's like, well, what does that mean? Uh, it's like, I like myself, mm-hmm. but what does that mean? It's like, okay, do you have strong ego sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. that's the more sort of clinical way of putting it. Now, what an ego sense is, is do I have an understanding of who I am mm-hmm. in all of the good and the bad ways that I have, mm-hmm. that, I, that mm-hmm. I am? And I think one of the ways in which I really love working with this, both personally and with clients, is the idea of the Jesus prayer. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. What's the Jesus prayer? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? And you just repeat this over and over. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's like, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. It's a confidence that I am being saved by the Lord, mm-hmm. right? A, a sort of mm-hmm. reliance on the Lord. And then it's a reminder that I am still a sinner. What, what it's a both act. What a change from the you are enough culture. Right. The reality um, is, is that you're both enough because of God, because of Christ, mm-hmm. because of the cross, you're mm-hmm. enough. 
And you're also not enough. And and you're also not. And you can accept that and accept that Christ is enough and turn to Christ in those moments, as you said, and, and make Christ, make the reality of the resurrection present in the current moment. Because I think a lot of times what happens with shame is we forget that the reality of the resurrection is not some historical event many, many moons ago, and we reenact it every Easter, um, like a like a we, so we represent we, it. We, not, no, no, no. What not I'm represent, saying is, but we represent. Right. What I'm saying is the typical, um, the typical perception of it, though, is that we're reenacting it just like a Civil War reenactment. Right. And again, I'm totally stealing a concept from Nicole Rokas or quoting a concept from her. Um, but I thought it was a really worthy one versus do I see this as a historical event or do I understand in every moment of every day that Christ's resurrection is present and that that is the reality. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the Jesus prayer. Like you said, you are affirming these truths. And if you're praying it, hopefully, I mean, ideally, we're praying it constantly in our hearts. I know I am not there yet, but at least if you're praying it frequently, you're drawing your attention to that reality more and more. I think that's true. And then, so the last thing that I kind of want to talk about here at the end is this concept of where I think shame and emotional difficulty because of the past. First Mm -hmm. off, there can be stuff in relation to trauma, um, which really, you know, if that's there, then then clinical work, you know, with a therapist is really important. And a lot... I mean, this is in many ways has become the golden age of trauma treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, in the last twenty years, holy moly, have we gotten good at uh, not, and, not 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 fixed everything, but I mean, things like we're now doing virtual reality. I mean, we're working on this here, yeah. but like virtual reality trauma treatments and stuff like that. Well, and neuro- neurologically, I think what people don't understand is there's this whole physiological neurological side with trauma where you literally are stuck in the past. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 that can be worked through absolutely. clinically. So that's one aspect absolutely. of trauma. But the other side to it, though, is when we look back about our past events and our past stuff, mm-hmm. when it really is emotionally difficult for us, when we're really at an emotional state. And, and typically with clients, what I say is, how disturbing is past events to you? And I say, okay, on a scale of 0 to 10, where 0 is no disturbance, and 10 is the most disturbance you can imagine, look back on those past experiences and how disturbing, if they're over six months old, how disturbing is the, that past event seem to you now? And this is an EMDR technique, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing question. And I think that's that's really important. Okay, so if it's at a you know somewhere in there, if it's at a probably over a four, maybe that's a therapeutic therapist kind of question. If it's lower than that, maybe you still need to see a therapist. You know, mm-hmm. but I think there's also this process of I don't have a full narrative of what this event meant in my life. I haven't mm-hmm. fully processed it, mm-hmm. and very often this can be done. And I, I, the grad school version of me hates that I'm saying this, but I think it's incredibly important. This idea of journaling. <laughs> see, back in the I past, just, ba- I, back yeah, in the I past, it was like, oh, write in your journal about it. And I just, you know, there was this like, this like um, butterflies and, you know, like. Dear uh, diary. Dear diary, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and that's not exactly what it is, but it's this process of saying, let me go back and write actually what happened. Let me go back and write exactly that event that is so painful and so difficult. It's not easy, 
But let me go through and write through the, the difficulty and the pain do of that you, past event. Do you also have people then reflect on, like, what is, what are they then feeling in their bodies as they're writing that out? Or is it just strictly, let's just get this out? No, the, well, I think it's a both end. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, I, it depends on the person. It depends on the ego strength of the person. Uh. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So sometimes it's, let's just get it out on paper. Mm-hmm. Let's also at different times say, okay, let me emotionally feel that within my body mm-hmm. because we do feel emotions in our body. That's mm-hmm. called like, you know, knots in your stomach is like an emotion yeah. in your body, right? Stress headache. Stress headache. Yeah, all of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of that kind of stuff can come out. And and so, yeah, I will talk about that and I'll talk around that. But by and large, it's in relation to just simply getting it out the first time, mm-hmm. just simply getting the material mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's generally what happens. And I think um, that can be really helpful to kind of talk through uh, to, mm-hmm. to write through that narrative. Mm-hmm. And I even, I mean, I even do this with clients uh, where it's you're like, look, I'm more than happy to sit here and listen to all of the details of the past trauma so you can work through that process through that in the in the moment. But in order to speed that along so you don't have to pay, a, you know, a big fee every single, <laughs> for every hour, mm-hmm. you can spend some time with a, with a notebook and do this on your own time and then bring it in and talk through it. So, so what is, can you just clarify really quick, what is the difference between that and ruminating on the past? Ruminating on the past is actually just staying in your head. And I think to a certain extent, it is a psychological attempt to mm-hmm. deal with the past. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's where you get stuck in an inability to move forward. Mm-hmm. Now... Mm-hmm. Where that comes from, there's a lot of psychological reasons and, you know, I I can go into that. But I think in particular, the process is saying, okay, let me get this out on paper Mm -hmm. when I'm journaling about this so that it's getting out of me emotionally. Now, we use Mm -hmm. that image of getting out and put it on the page. But Mm -hmm. really what it is is it's a process process of reprocessing the past event. Mm -hmm. And that's... Slightly different. It, it sounds almost like not even just getting it out, but integrating it into who you are. Right. Precisely. Like, mm-hmm. Precisely. Now, I, I, I use that image of getting it out. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Because it's it's actually like putting it on paper. But what it is, is it's it's actually a process of, of, of reprocessing that, integrating that narrative into your life. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be really, really effective. Mm-hmm. I think the key about this is that deep down, if it... If you're struggling with that, therapy from a Catholic or, or secular therapist is really important. Again, mm-hmm. miracles can happen in this area around shame. And, it, you know, right from the get-go, ask your therapist if they have sort of an understanding and work with shame um, and sort of an understanding of how they would work with shame too. And, and then understand that that could very well be a daily process. You might be in therapy for maybe a year or two. But that could be a daily process and a really unglamorous process yeah. for the next 47 years. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully not. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully well, it's faster. But well, sometimes it takes the spiritual life is, is a long time. Yeah. It's not just yeah. quick. So yeah. we better leave that there. But uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Psyche Podcast.